Welcome again to Word by Word, conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today we are traveling back to war-torn Japan during the time when Lord Oda was shogun in a conversation with David Cuddler about his newly released young adult novel, Risiko. Risiko. We will also explore some of the Asian mythologies that Joseph Campbell wrote about in Saki and Satori, Myths and Light, and Hero with a Thousand Faces posthumous editions of which were edited by David for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. David Cuddler is a graduate of Tamalpais High School and has a B.A. in Creative Writing and an M.A. in English Literature from Stanford and an M.F.A. from the National Theater Conservatory. He is a teacher, editor, author, actor, and storyteller, husband and father. He was education director for the Marin Theater Company for nearly six years and is best known as publishing director of the Joseph Campbell Foundation where he is the managing director of the collected works of Joseph Campbell series, including Pathways to Bliss and Myths to Live. David founded Still Point Digital Press in 2012 and has recently expanded to audiobook production. He is the past president and is the current vice president of the, of the Bay Area Independent Publishers Association and is a blogger at the Huffington Post. David, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You write online that Rusuko is a young adult historical adventure novelist, samurai girl in war-torn Japan who finds herself enmeshed in a plot that may bring the nation peace or another century of destruction. Mm -hmm. Can you share why you needed to write this book? Um, I have uh, two daughters, and uh, they uh, are both uh, passionate readers as well, and one of them uh, was uh, had subscribed to a magazine called New Moon, which was for young women, and it mm-hmm. was talking about women both currently and in history. And uh, I'm flipping through uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, issues of it, and there was an article about uh, a woman named Mochizuki Chiyome, uh, who was this. Uh, historical figure. She was a war widow who decided uh, that the uh, at a century, the, the Civil War in Japan had been going on too long. And she was kind of getting tired of, of the whole thing. Uh, couldn't think of a way to end it other than to create her own army. And in her case, uh, what she had available to her was an army of young women. She recruited uh, young women, uh, trained them to be what are called miko, Shrine maidens, which are, if you've ever seen uh, any Japanese ceremonies or, or uh, festivals, often uh, they are presided over or assisted at by these young women in red and white robes. And, uh, you know, they play music and they dance and they sing. Um, Serve and, tea. I'm sorry? Serve tea. Yeah, well, yeah, yes. actually, that's part of the ritual. Yes. Often. Uh, serve tea for the gods, serve tea for, you know, the people at the, at the, uh, at the festival. Um, they are basically everywhere in Japan. They're, they're part of everyday life in Japan. And so they were invisible. And so Chiyomi, uh, Lady Chiyomi, uh, what she ended up doing was creating, uh, a school for Miko. But in fact, what she was training them to become 
was in addition to all of these uh, ritual things was I, 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 I always hesitate to say ninja warriors because ninja has a very specific image in a lot of people's head and it's a very pop culture kind they of thing. They don't dress in black. They're in red and white. Though. Exactly. Right. And in fact, they are being trained uh, to be assassins and bodyguards and spies. They – are invisible not because they're dressed in black and they have supernatural powers that they can you know meld into the shadows, but because nobody expects a young woman dressed as a shrine maiden to come at them with a sword. Well, they don't have supernatural powers, but they have extraordinary gifts. Right. Well, the 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 uh, story, uh, as I read this story in this magazine, I was astonished because I thought somebody ought to write this. Mm-hmm. My God, somebody must have already written this book, <laughs> and nobody had. Mm-hmm. So I decided I was going to. And started thinking about what uh, kind of a story I wanted it to look like. I knew uh, Lady Chiomi was going to be a central character. But I figured uh, it would be more interesting to write it from the point of view of uh, one of these young women. And so um, the young woman, uh, you know, I was trying to – doing a lot of research trying to come up with who, you know, who – uh, the story was going to be about, and I just um, uh, my younger daughter uh, was always a creature who liked to jump first and then figure out where she was jumping to. Um, and I was in a playground, uh, so she was she now is off in college, but she was very little at the time. And uh, I was sitting there with a mom, and uh, my daughter Julia and her her friend Lucas were playing around us and we were engaged in some deep philosophical conversation about something and all of a sudden Hanukkah, who's the mom, looks up and says, "What? where are the kids? And we suddenly hear giggling and it's from about 20 feet above us in a tree mm-hmm. and the kids are up there and they're waving at us mm-hmm. and um, I'm not great with heights. I, I have a deep respect for depths. That's uh, Terry Pratchett, yes. um, the yes. Discworld uh, book writer, used to say, great recept- you know, respect for depths and that's me uh so i'm looking up at at the kids and and my heart is in my throat and i asked them to come down which they very politely did but as i was thinking through right after that what i wanted to write uh, i realized that the young girl where she was going to start was up in a tree Mm -hmm. and in fact um uh that you talk about extraordinary ability but she's a uh, uh an orphan of a samurai Disgraced samurai, but she loves nothing so much as to climb. She loves to climb, and I've known kids who are like this. She's quite good at it, uh, and so that's why her mother gives her the nickname uh, Risco, which means squirrel girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, well, let's uh, let's read a little bit. Please. Uh, she's come down from the tree, and she's been grabbed, if you will, by two immense men. Yes, who were accompanying a lady in a palanquin. Okay? Right. I'm going to have to get you get your glasses. That's here. exactly because I'm not do. as young as I once was. Yeah. Hold well, on a second here. Yeah, that none of us are. She motioned for the men to bring her palanquin. It was decorated as were the coats of the men with the lady's mon, her house's symbol, a plain, solid white circle. They placed the box beside her, and she eased into it, barely seeming to move. Come. Walk with me, Risiko. I have some more questions to ask you, then she snapped. Little brother? Yes, lady, called the servant, who stood in front of the palanquin, the larger of the two men. He gave a quiet sort of grunt, and then, in perfect unison with his partner, lifted the box and began to march forward. Stay with me, girl, 
the old lady ordered, and I scurried to keep up. I was surprised by the strength of the two men. They hardly seemed to notice the weight they carried. But their speed was what took my breath away. As I scrambled to keep up, the mistress began to bark at me. Oh, what did I hear about your father? He taught you to write. How did you know my father? Y yes, he was a scribe, I wanted to add, but did not, and a samurai, too. He can't have been much of a scribe, she sniffed. No apprentice, so he teaches his daughter to use a brush? What a waste. And the rags you wear? He died. Aunt Mother has struggled, I panted. He was a good scribe, but there wasn't much need for one here. What do farmers need with contracts or letters? We moved quickly, speeding right past the path that led to my home. Oh, well, I thought, we'll join up with the main road and then come into the village the long way. Yes, she said, looking pleased with herself. I suppose Lord Imagawa would only it would be about the only client worth having here in the wilderness. Don't fall behind, child. I was beginning to sweat in spite of the cold. The smell of approaching snow was sour in the air. The rear servant, the one who wasn't quite as enormous as the one that the lady called little brother, pulled even with me. Without even turning his head, the man gave a low bark. Imperceptibly, the two men slowed to a pace that I could match. Grateful, I looked over toward the servant in the rear. I wasn't sure, but I could have sworn that he winked. I could see the bulk of Lord Imagawa's castle through the open shutters of the palanquin. Banners flew from the roof that I'd never seen there before, blue and red. The old lady followed my gaze up the hill. Yes, depressing old pile of rock, isn't it? I couldn't think of any way to answer that. I wasn't sure she expected me to answer. You really climbed all of the way up to the windows? She was looking at me closely. I nodded. Yes, very interesting. She clicked her tongue. And today? I don't suppose you could have seen anything of interest today. Lord Himagawa, I panted. Soldier pointing at a, a drawing. Now her eyes widened. You could see that from such a distance. Could you see what the drawing looked like? green squares, surrounded by smaller squares of red and blue. What looked like little pine trees sticking out of the squares, I nodded. Now the lady smiled, looking like an old mother pig when it's found a nice puddle to wallow in. Somehow the smile was even more frightening. At that moment we met up with the main road. I was certain that we would turn right, back in toward the village, to, the, to my house, my mother, and that some explanation for this peculiar line of questions would present itself. Instead, the palanquin turned smoothly left. Confused, I stopped in my tracks. Stop, the lady yelled. Little brother and the winking one came to a halt. Come on, girl. But I told you to keep up with me, child. She wasn't even looking at me. But th the village is... I pointed down the road that I had been walking most of my life to the bridge I could see just behind the spur of trees that led to my house. Silly Risico. Down. The two men lowered her toward the cro to the crossroad. Now she looked at me. You're not going back there. Your mother sold you to me this morning. She leaned out the window and barked to the carriers. Go! Aha. Uh -huh. So when you said that she acquired the girls, or whatever word you used, she did more than just that. There was an active contract made. She was uh, obviously... Uh uh, it, it, there were there were different girls are are acquired right. in different, different ways. ways. Some of them uh, we find uh, were begging on the streets mm -hmm. and literally are just sort of picked up and nobody cares that they're they're taken. Uh, some of them, as Risico was, uh, are essentially purchased into uh, indentured servitude. Right. 
Um, slavery was uh, – Others were in um, – what were they in? Shrines and working with uh, you know, monastery exactly. kinds we're, of places? in the monastery. Yeah. There's a young boy who right. uh, was uh, brought as – as it turns out, it's never come up. But the two two men, the servants, the big servants, that's uh, where they came from. They came from. Wow, the that's their backstory, which we don't find out about no. here. So now I've told you. Ah, well, it's the secret's out. Shh. I won't tell anybody except <laughs> those who listen. Of course, well, right? Yeah. So essentially, we have we have a semi-orphan girl, and the others she is yes. with are also orphaned in a way, or yes. or literally. Yes, and in fact, that was part of what was of interest to me. Um, you have a very formal country with a very well-defined social order in Japan that has been in a, in a state of civil war for a hundred years, mm-hmm. and so all of the things that give people's lives structure, uh, their uh, their class, their family, their gender, uh, their profession if they have one, um, all of those things have been blown up. Um, and literally, so, in literally, some places, yeah, and definitely, lots of men are gone. Lots of men are gone. Um, the the uh, traditional social structures have been destroyed, uh, especially in you know um, outside of the ruling classes. Where now, is this the time of the Ronin, the the samurais without a leader? Well, in fact, there are a lot of Ronin. Uh, the 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 famous story of the forty seven Ronin, which is the one a lot of us know, mm-hmm. comes from about a hundred years later, after the Civil War. Right. Um, and once, and part of what's interesting about that story is it is very much about reinstating the proper social order. It's about these servants to this lord, who's. Uh, their lord was dis, uh, dishonored mm-hmm. by this other lord mm-hmm. uh, and forced to commit seppuku. Right. And in fact, uh, they take revenge because uh, this other lord, they feel, act, dis, acted dishonorably. Very much in the, in the uh, tradition of Bushido, of the way of the warrior. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of the, the uh, controlling uh, structure of the ruling classes. Um, in the 1570s, which is when uh, 1570s when this book starts, mm-hmm. that's still there. But um, especially if you're not part of the ruling class, uh, everything is in uproar, tumult. And so, uh, what was interesting to me was you have all of these orphans of the war. Mm-hmm. You have Lady Chiomi, who's a war widow. You have all of these people. But we don't know that. Or, no, no, we don't. No, yeah. We discover that. Yeah. Um, and and I, I sort of wanted to see um, Risiko, as we discover, uh, was raised by her father, uh, even though he was ha, had been raised himself as a warrior, he raised her to be a pacifist. No, let's not give away too much there because you keep dropping uh, little hints along the I'm way. I'm so sorry. Okay. And as uh, Risiko overhears conversations, you mm-hmm. know, from high up places, or she actually has a conversation or two with other people that are directly about her father. And they get to a certain point and then say, well, we shall see or you shall find that out sure. in time. There was, in fact, uh, a uh, whole part of her father's life that she doesn't know anything about. Right, right. And that, in fact, is part of what uh, her journey in in the book is about, is trying to reconcile herself to, on the one hand, what she believes about her father, and in the other, what she's discovering about him. Well, that's interesting. You start the book off uh, in, you know, the idea of, of going along 
on a journey, a literal journey. Literal, yes. And then you get to the, what do we call it, the enclave? Yes. Yes, where there, it's sort of uh, a training center for it's primarily women. Yeah. Right, it's Lady Chiomi's uh, school. school. Yeah. Um, it's called the Full Moon, which mm-hmm. is a translation of Mochizuki. That's what that means. Um, and uh, I, in my mind, the journey is just starting when they get there. Right. Because the journey isn't just about traveling across war-torn Japan, although that was a fun part to write. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also about um, this journey of discovery uh, for this young woman mm-hmm. and for her companions as they suddenly find themselves uh, confronted with uh, an entirely new way of life. Well, the girls, two of the girls are captured and tied up by bandits. Yes. 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 Which uh, is pretty exciting Risco, in itself. That's, well, yes. Yes. And but Risco, they manage to escape. Yeah. And then uh, after their escape, uh, we find out that this ability of being squirrel-like has a certain uh, advantage for, yes, the, for the lady and her followers. Right, where are the... And so uh, they've been... Uh, the, the two girls have been captured. Risiko and Toomi have managed to get themselves free. Right, by climbing up on top by, of... Yeah, literally, literally. Risiko uses Toomi. They've been tied up and they, Risiko climbs on top of Toomi in order to release herself. Uh, and now uh, she needs to go help the uh, party that they... That's had traveling on the road. Traveling on the road. Right. We need to warn the others. They'll... uh, Sorry, let me go back. Okay. This is uh, a a character named Mieko who is uh, one of the teachers at the school. Mm -hmm. And she says, but we need to warn the others. They'll have just started this back this way from the switchback. If we can warn them, Mieko frowned. But I don't want to risk exposing you to these bandits or... Her eyes swept around the clearing, ending on the cedar where we'd been tied. Her eyes narrowed, and she walked up toward the tree, plucking the arrow that had nearly pierced my arm from the bark. She turned. Risiko, she said, her voice suddenly low. Do you think that it would be quicker for you to scurry through this bramble or to climb over the top? I blinked. Um, through the canopy? She nodded and pointed to the right of the tree. Go, now. That way. Warn Masugu and the rest that there's an ambush. Not waiting for another word, I sprinted to the edge of the clearing and clambered to the matted top of the juniper. Glancing back, I saw Mieko hauling Tumi into hiding in the brush. The juniper branches were thick and springy. As I burst up through the top layer, I could hear the muted sound of our company. They had just turned at the switchback. Squinting, I could just make out Masugu's tall stallion where I should have been riding. I set out at a sprint running along one bouncy juniper limb, crossing to the next where they crossed. The branches were so thickly overlapping that while the going was slower than it would have been on open ground, I was moving much faster than I would have through the underbrush below, and with a much clearer sense of where I was going. I zigged and zagged along the treetops for a few heartbeats when I heard a clatter behind me. Glancing back, I saw no one. I ran a few more steps, another clatter. I turned around again, nothing. Then, from out of the trees downhill on the opposite side of the road, I saw a gray speck lancing toward me, not pausing to think I ducked. The arrow hissed over my head like an angry snake. I dropped down into the juniper. I heard another arrow thud into the branch just ahead of me. Crouching just below the top layer of branches, I tried to think. 
I needed to warn Masugu-san and the rest of the party, but I was too far away to shout, and if I tried to climb above the canopy again, the archers would be looking for me. I could try to make my way back on the ground, but going would be slow and not going straight downhill as I had before getting caught earlier. I would have a hard time keeping my sense of direction. I could just hear the clatter of our party's hooves on the stony road, and I knew that they would be in the bandits' range soon. Still, I had to be closer to Masuga and the rest of them uh, than the bandits were. If I could only scout out a direct... I gasped, stunned that it had taken me so long to remember. Placing my hands in front of my mouth, holding on to the branch with my knees, I let out three owl hoots, not caring what kind of an owl this time, just making sure that they were as loud as I could make them. I listened. The hoofbeats continued. Hoo! 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 I thought I heard Masugu's voice, but it sounded as if the horses were still clopping toward the bandit's trap. I breathed deep, squeezed hard with my knees, and hooted louder than any owl could have. I heard the lieutenant's voice again, shouting this time. Attack! We're under attack! Form up! Then there was yelling and shouting, and the clash of swords and horses and men screaming, just as there had been at the Mount Fuji Inn. Only this time, I had absolutely no intention of sticking my head out where it might get shot. Mm-hmm. So, obviously this young person, this young girl, has a skill that's a value. Uh, she is able to climb. She's obviously very observant. And in this particular case, because she loves spending time up in trees and around birds, uh, she has practiced a lot of bird calls. Right. And as it turns out, uh, the uh, army lieutenant that she has been riding with, uh, Lieutenant Masugu, uh, was uh, telling her that that's how the scouts uh, for their army, the Takeda army, right. um, how that they communicate with the uh, with the troops. In fact, the lieutenant says after they get meet up again, well. If the lady doesn't want you, I can always use you as a scout. <laughs> Which, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, Risigo is very uh, uh, flattered by. I would think, yeah. yeah. A handsome man telling her this. Well, yeah. yeah. With actual worth. Now, this is also the interesting thing is that the role of a woman, a young woman who has no, who is no longer a samurai. Right. Right. She's lost those... Um, Special conditions right. that come along with exactly. that. Exactly. Her father uh, allowed disgraced. himself to be dishonored. Right. So she has a uh, few prospects, would you say? None. None. I mean, yeah. she is basically uh, a young girl uh, in a uh, poor country village who uh, at best was looking at becoming a farmer uh, or a farmer's wife. I don't think she even thought about it. I don't think she'd gotten no, that far. She no. just liked to climb. Yes. And in fact, uh, that is another part of what was interesting to me about it was looking at, you know, this young girl going from a very childlike um, view of the world to being thrust into a place where she had to look at the world from a more adult point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, the school is a bit... Um off the beaten path, shall we say. <laughs> and um, to make her sure she has and knows what she's supposed to do, she gets to meet um, the cook. Oh. So tell me about the Korean cook. Okay. Uh, well, the Korean cook is named Kisun. And uh, he, he is um, irascible and cranky. 
and uh, has a sense of humor that Risiko doesn't always quite get. Um, she's not always sure she understands the joke. Well, especially when he's threatening to cut off an arm or a leg yeah, if they don't behave. Yeah, because that's his standard right. way of making a funny. You right. know, it's like, ah, and if, if you do that, I'm going to cut off your arm. Right. And uh, she's never And in, the, in that joking. era, that was not uncommon. He really could have done that. Yeah. And he had lots of sharp knives to do it with, so. And he wouldn't have been punished for doing that. Uh, no. Right. Because she is, in fact, a girl of no standing and he is, in fact, uh, an older man. So Yeah. And in this case, she's working as his uh, helper. Mm-hmm. So uh, he doesn't – well, I don't want to give anything no. away there. Yeah. He's not a dangerous character. Um, one is never sure. But as it turns but out – But he's Korean. Well, he is Korean. I also want And wanted, there's history there too. There is history there. And and in fact, he uh, worked for the ladies' chef uh, during one of – Japan and Korea invaded each other on a regular basis through most of the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Lord Mochikazuki was part of a campaign uh, invading Korea mm-hmm. uh, and that's where uh, he picked up Kisun. Uh, who came back and uh, is now a servant of the Lord's right. uh, widow. And he has a very specific idea that he has been brought to be there to, uh, shall we say, spice up the Japanese food, which he finds too sweet and bland and brown. Yes. Yes. The the idea being that uh, if you've ever uh, looked at uh, Asian cuisine, the philosophy of Asian cuisine, it ties in with the philosophy of, of uh, alchemy. Four flavors. Five. Five flavors. They oh, have, yeah. Uh, five oh, the, flavors. Five, the, uh, the, right. five elements uh, and five colors that each tie in. Sweet, sour, bitter. Hot. Hot and salt. And salt. Yeah. And uh, – Well, what's this uh, – the flavor of uh, braised beef and soy? Well, the idea is that that's got uh, a lot of uh, uh, salt, some sweet in it, uh, and it's got um, – a little bit of heat from some pepper usually. That's what Kisun likes to make sure that's yeah, a little hot. Yeah, some too hot. Right. Too hot for some. Kimchi especially. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, and the idea is that the full meal is supposed to combine uh, all of those flavors and then also all of the colors, brown, green, white, red, yellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that by eating in balance, we are what we eat. We as people are now in balance. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's always grumbling about the fact that the Japanese like sweet and brown and bland. Um, and so, yeah, he sees it as his job to make sure that the people at uh, the full moon uh, get the full spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> full spectrum. Yes. Absolutely. Well, he puts them to work. One of the, the titles you call smelly work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you should read this a little bit here because he's got the girls working in the kitchen and at first they're just serving the meals to the next room. That's right. And cleaning up and cleaning the bathhouse after the end of the day. Exactly. Doing the stuff that – I mean, you know, and uh, particularly Tomi, who's one of the other girls, is really grumbling because she wants to do something more interesting and exciting. And she feels – she was begging on the streets of Kyoto, but this is somehow beneath her. Right. Um, Well, but she was her own boss. Well, that's it. Yeah. One afternoon, as we shuffled into Kisun's kitchen to take up our evening duties, we were presented with a new challenge. 
Once again, each of us had a knife, laid out with ritual precision across the bottom of a cutting board. Where we had always had piles of vegetables and butchered meats, however, each of us was presented with a trio of slaughtered chickens. Emmy made a face, and Toomi grumbled, but I knew how to start at least. This much mother had taught us on days when we were fortunate enough to catch a bird, or one of Orochi-san's hens was no good for eggs any more. I began plucking the feathers from the flesh. There you go, girlies, laughed Kisun. Bright eyes got the idea. Can't eat feathers, though, can ye? We stripped our carcasses. Tomi never stopped grumbling, but uh, nor did her expression lose any of its edge. Emmy, however, was so engrossed in the unpleasant, difficult task that her usual scowl faded. Her face seemed as blank and neutral as a Jizobazatsu's statue. Once we had each stripped the carcasses of their feathers, the mess now filled baskets at our feet. Kisun called out happily, Well, it's about time, girlies. You're going to learn the proper use of a blade. With glee, he proceeded to instruct us in the technique for gutting, cleaning, skinning, and butchering a chicken. I won't pretend that Emmy and I didn't throw up. Toomi did, too, twice. That's fine. Okay. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today we are traveling back to war-torn Japan during the time when Lord Oda was shogun in a conversation with David Cutler about his newly released young adult novel, Risikul. In the next half hour, we will explore some of the Asian mythologies that Joseph Campbell wrote about, and the posthumous editions of which were edited by David in the, for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. So stay tuned right here to KRCB-FM. Okay. So we now... Uh, the girls don't know why they're doing this. It's just no. another task in the kitchen. Right. They, they think they're just learning how to... But these knives are very, very, very sharp. Yeah, anybody who uh, has ever looked at um, really, really fine Japanese cutlery Mm -hmm. or uh, really, really fine Japanese swords know that they could be unbelievably sharp. Um, And in fact... A micron thick at the edge of the blade. Exactly. This this is uh, uh, weapon-grade kitchenware. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and not without reason. Beat three t- uh, days in, in the forge, as I remember. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and Kisun takes his knives very, very seriously. Um, and in fact, the girls, slowly over time, uh, discover that it isn't just about learning to be uh, kitchen servants and serving girls. Um, and uh, that... Is part something of the, the reader shall probably yeah. discover. Let's let them I, discover. That's what I said. Yeah, okay. I, I'm not going to give away too much. Right. But that's part of the journey. Uh, and that's the uh, exciting part, I think. Right. Well, she does learn a little bit more about her destiny because she's uh, she, uh, one of the older women, come, girls, I guess, comes and says, they're, they're talking about you. They're talking about you. So she climbs up a wall and to an open window. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a conversation going on inside. What page do I want? Okay. And um, so she ends up um, going in and talking with the um, the lady. So you want to start right here? 
Sure, and this is one of my favorite conversations in the book. Good. Why was she telling me all of this? I certainly couldn't have told you at the time. I think, in part, it was a test to see if I could follow what she was talking about. In part, too, I think that it was a subject close to whatever served the old woman for a heart. It was a topic about which she had clearly thought long and deeply. Eventually, she took and released a deep breath, indicating the white pebble pebbles with one elegant wrinkled hand. She said, And what do you know about Odasama, young Kano? I thought about the conversations that I had had with Musugu-san on the long ride to Mochizuki. I couldn't tell her everything, because I couldn't stand to admit how little I knew, and because I wasn't sure the lieutenant was supposed to tell me, and I didn't want to get him into trouble. I, I know that my father served for a time as a samurai underneath him. Chiyomi-sama narrowed her eyes. And do you know why your father left his service? Not everyone does, you know. I, I looked up into her shrewd face. I know that my father, Emmys and Toomis, were sent on a mission that they refused. That is all I know. Then you know more than I thought you did. Do you know anything about this mission? When I shook my head, she daintily straightened up the stones around the capital. She waited quietly until I once again uh, was feeling on the edge of bursting. Ask yourself, Risiko-chan, what your father valued more than anything, more even than his own honor. I... She was asking such an impossible question, yet I did not know how to refuse or to avoid her gaze. Family, I whispered. Yes, she said. Then ask yourself what mission Lord Oda could have given so honorable a man as your father that he would have refused. My eyes must have given some sense of the horror that swept over me at that moment, because Lady Chiomi laughed. No, no silly girl, she wasn't ordered to kill you. Why would Oda-sama bother with that? Then a wry smile twisted her still powdered face. Such a bright girl as yourself, you should be able to work it out. I can't imagine, Chiyomi-sama. I stared down at the board. Lady, what are these, these red and white pins? Her smile broadened. I expect you to work that out as on your own as well, Risiko. Now I am tired of idle pratter. Leave me, girl. Uncertain, I stood and began to stumble back toward the window. Her rough, dry laugh burst forth again, stopping me. No, no. Stairs, stupid child. Once you've been caught, you might as well take advantage of the easiest route of escape. Her face still bore all of the signs of amusement, though her eyes were mirthless. Do shutter the windows, however. It's getting chilly. With a nod of my head, I pulled the shutters closed. And my squirrel, the old woman muttered as I began to withdraw down the stairs. I froze, afraid of what she might have to add. She smiled at me thoughtfully. When next you decide to listen at windows on a frosty evening... Do remember that the steam from your breath rises. Place yourself to the side. Stunned again, I mumbled a quick, Yes, Chiyomi-sama, and tiptoed down the stairs and back to my quarters as quickly as my wobbly legs could carry me. Mm -hmm. So Obi-Wan is giving advice. Yeah, well, it's, it's a Obi-Wan with a really perverse sense of humor, I think. 
Well, um, yeah, it's maybe probably appropriate for the time. Yeah, yeah, in this situation. And I think actually, you know, Obi Wan's sense of humor is probably just as dry, dry yeah. as well. I yeah. think, but uh, more subtle. Well, that wasn't too subtle a transition into Joseph Campbell, was it? Uh, no, it was. Perfect. I had a feeling that's where you were going. Yeah, you did, you. Uh, and in fact, um, I started writing this um, immediately following having edited a book called uh, Pathways to Bliss. Uh, uh, most, one of his, if not his most famous quote. Is, right. Find your, yeah. is follow your bliss. Follow your bliss. And uh, I, what I had done was taken a, an entire – oh, uh, Many, many, many hours of transcribed lectures mm -hmm. and unpublished. So writing. you're working with paper. You're not listening to them. Uh, both, ah. both, both. Uh, and um, I, I needed the transcriptions in order to edit the book together. Gotcha. I didn't do them myself because uh, that is very time-consuming work. You had one of the young girls that had been just bought from her mother. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, a volunteer. All and, right. And what? What? I had done was uh, synthesize all of this, uh, these lectures and, and, and unpublished writings that we had that was on the subject of uh, following your own bliss and how to. Um, well, now use that's an interesting. So, what, is, what was our, used our as, a, as a? Um, how did you winnow that down? Did I mean obviously oh, you can go through you know electronically and pick out every certain keywords that would come up, for instance. But I don't think you probably did that. No. Um, what I started was by looking for a lot of the, again, unpublished writings or uncollected writings and um, also the uh, lectures that he had given on – Campbell felt that there were four functions of any working mythology. One was uh, uh, the metaphysical. One was sociological. One was um, – um, I'm blanking on the word, but basically ontological, where you look, put you in, in, in a structure. Terms of, right. Well, and also in terms of the, the world around you. Right. But the fourth, and he felt the most important, was psychological. And so myth, uh, any working mythology, uh, is part of its function is to help the individual through the crises that we all go through in our lives. And uh, he spoke about that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And, and I, some of my favorite um, lectures of his. And so I gathered a whole bunch of them together and started then to look for what the structure of it was. And I realized that uh, part of the um, uh, overarching structure of it was, uh, in fact, uh, a structure that he had laid out in his most famous book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which was this thing called The Hero Journey. Right where the hero starts in the everyday, you know, everyday world and is – Up uh, a tree. For instance, and is called to adventure by, say, a lady who – Yeah, buys who happens to be going by at the time. And yeah. Is, yes, right. Uh, and is pulled into uh, either willingly or unwillingly. Uh, um, it usually, yeah, it, it's right. a little of both, isn't right. it? Right. In, well, in, in Risico's case, it certainly is. But in, in terms of the psychology of the hero journey um, – it always has to be at least somewhat willing. Uh, you can refuse the call to adventure like Jonah does. Three times. Right. right. And eventually you look up and say, oh, to heck with it. I'm going to go dive into the fish's mouth. And um, once you dive in 
that is what's called uh, the threshold of adventure. You cross over. Usually there's some sort of a monster guarding the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to an extent, that's Geomi here. Mm -hmm. um, and then you that's are an interesting. That's an interesting. I hadn't thought of her that well, way. Well, yeah. people can serve multiple. I mean, in stories, uh, you can serve multiple roles in terms of the archetypes of the hero adventure. Yeah, we're back to young and archetypes. Oh, yes, we, we yes. are. Um, but um, – the idea of the hero journey, just to give it a quick overview, is that you cross into adventure. You go through a series of trials. Uh, you are transformed. You actually die to your former self. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you come out a new person, and then you return, either literally to where you started. Uh, often that's the case. Uh, you know, uh, Sam and Frodo return to the Shire. Right. Bilbo does too. Um uh, or it can be a return to what you thought of as everyday life, only you've changed. And now you bring something with you, which is either a, a, a literal treasure, uh, a weapon, uh, or knowledge. Uh, the Buddha comes down, you know, from the Bodhi tree and has the, uh, the, the message of nirvana. And, you know, he can't bring you there, but he can tell you the road that will mm -hmm. lead you there. Mm -hmm. Um that's it. It's, uh, you know, you are uh, separated from your everyday world. You're initiated into a new world and then you return. And that's what the basic structure that uh, Campbell had explored in um, The Hero with a Thousand Faces that he published in 1949. Mm -hmm. And that he uh, really, the powerful part of that structure is what he was doing was describing myths. He wasn't saying... This is how you should write a story. He wasn't saying this is how you should create uh, a ritual of your own personal transformation. He was saying, look, at the, all of these stories that we look at for as long as we have stories, going back to Gilgamesh and Inanna and all of these, Beowulf, the Odyssey right. is a spectacular example of it, all follow the same pattern. And it's true, I mean, you know, even if you look at uh, stories from cultures that had no contact with, mm -hmm. you know, the classic canon. You know, the, the stories of uh, Mesoamerica follow the same pattern. So, I mean, pre-Columbian. Right. So the idea is that this is, in fact, a ritual of personal transformation, um, that we tell these stories because we identify with the hero and we go through that transformation that they go through and we are transformed by it um, and in some cases uh, that that ritual and that transformation are literal when Navajo have healing songs mm -hmm. the stories that they tell as part of the song that the paintings the sand paintings where the two came to their father exactly first That's a, Campbell was the first book. book that he participated in he wrote the introduction for a um, uh, a, a name man, a, a, a Navajo singer by the name of Jeffrey King mm -hmm. had uh, given not all of because that would have been. Yeah, there's a lot of. This is interesting. I happen to have one of the portfolios because oh, my mother-in-law collected. Book. Yes, oh, it is amazing. Uh, I have the small paperback, and it's well, this still is beautiful. the full format. That size. is, yeah. Uh, those are those are hard to find. I understand that. Um, it is basically leading you through the story of these two hero warriors. And the idea is that uh, the uh, this was a ritual for uh, soldiers who had come back to be healed so that they would no longer be warriors. Mm -hmm. They would now be people within the tribe. Right. Um, they were transformed by the story. 
Well, now let's put this in time and place, and this is Please. what I find interesting because this came out in '43, so we're in the middle of a war. That was that was, in fact, uh, the, the the where the two came to their father was dealing with the Navajo who are coming back. Uh, Jeffrey King himself, Jeff King, right? Jeff King had been a uh, uh, a scout for the U.S. Army. He was now a singer, a Navajo singer. He had been a scout uh, in the early 20th century up through the First World War, and now. You had these Navajo, the the um, wind talkers, wind talkers, right? And they were going off to the South Pacific and to the uh, you know to to the European theater, and some of them were coming back, and they were suffering from what we now call PTSD. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the wonderful things that happen to you when you go into a world that's been turned upside down, the way the world of war is, and so the idea was that this was a ritual that was going to heal them, right? Um, and so. As I was structuring Pathways to Bliss, that hero journey structure was what I began to see informing all of uh, Campbell's talking about the subject. And I used that as a somewhat of, a, of an overarching uh, structure to the book. Um, and that was a, an unbelievably satisfying experience. Um, I had the the experience, you asked me if I listened I listened to thousands of hours of him talking, okay? Um, and From got his lectures point, at Sarah Lawrence? Uh, lectures at Sarah Lawrence, lectures elsewhere. We have... Because uh, I only know him from the Bill Moyers. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Well, that's probably what he's most famous from. But he, from the late 50s through until literally up until his death, lectured everywhere. And he used the recordings of his lectures to create his own books. Mm-hmm. So we had, we had thousands of hours of him talking. Um, everywhere from, you know, little 50-minute uh, interviews on the radio to week-long Esalen workshops. And um, I was listening to a lot of this stuff and it got to the point where I, I literally was hearing his voice in my sleep. <laughs> I was dreaming in the voice of Joseph Gamble, which is a little scary. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I, I ended up doing uh, at one point – uh, there were two parts that I, I had in a, se- in a in a chapter, and I knew what needed to go in part A and what needed to go in part B, but there was nothing that I could use as a filler between them. They didn't really have a transition. Part A and part B being what? Oh, gosh. I'd have to look back. I can't even remember what they were. But one of them, uh, it was uh, – I can't even remember. I can okay. find it for you. Sorry to but, put you on No, no. Spot. It was a good question. All right. Um, but they were both discussions about – um, how psychology, how mythology worked on the on the subconscious. Yeah, and he used to write originally about Freudian things a well, lot. Freudian, but, but also and your Freudian. your dream work may be interestingly there. Yes. Absolutely, but um, what ended up happening was I'm sitting there staring and I'm looking for just two sentences or a paragraph to tie these two together, and it suddenly came to me. I knew exactly when it needed to go there, which was a, a T.S. Eliot quote. Uh, you know, at the still point of the turning world there the dance is right right uh he's talking about i i, I do remember it's it was talking about the the image of the world navel uh, ah okay anyway i, I wrote uh, you know a, a, a sentence introducing the the quote i wrote the quote and then i called up the head of the foundation the campbell foundation who uh had been joseph campbell's editor and i said forgive me father for i have written joseph campbell and he said what what <laughs> What do you mean? And I said, well, 
I couldn't find the thing to go between these two sections. And so I, he said, what did you, you, what did you put there? And I said, well, I, I said, you know, as T.S. Eliot says, at the, you know, whatever, at the still point of the turning world. And he laughed and he said, David, do you have a copy of, and it was one of the Aranos yearbooks, mm-hmm. one of the, a, a, a book that Campbell had edited. And he said, okay, find the essay that he wrote on, and I can't even remember what the essay was, and turn to page, whatever, whatever. And, and he's got it. the same And quote. it was the same quote to connect the same two ideas. Gotcha. And that was, that was a really, you know, sort of make the hair go up on the back So when you get immersed in the, uh, the subject, it becomes part and parcel and you uh, absolutely. can make the connection. Absolutely. Now, tying it back in with Risico a little bit, I started writing Risico not long after with uh, that um, and had come up with the idea for the story the way I, I said, you know, I had read the article, I had seen my daughter up the tree, and I started writing and wrote an outline, did a lot of research, wrote the outline for the book, and then about 20 chapters in, got absolutely stuck, couldn't look at it, couldn't think about it. I, it was Twenty chapters in. Where are we about? In the oh, book? in here. Yeah, I, I actually oh, this, cut the, quite a bit. Okay, so so it no longer. Well, is, you've expanded it. Aren't you going to do a trilogy? Well, that uh, four, oh, four books. Quadrology. Yes. What is that? What is that? Tetralogy. I think Could, is, is what you say. It again. Tetralogy. Tetralogy. Yeah. Tetra. Okay. Meaning four. Okay. Um, but the see, I was doing quadra meaning. I know. Quadra, yeah, uh, but uh, but logos is is Greek. Gotcha. Okay. So tetra. Yeah. But. Um, I got stuck, and um, one of you know the things that sort of happened is I just said I'm going to put this away, and not long after that, we decided the foundation decided that we were going to bring out a new edition, the first new edition of Here with a Thousand Faces mm-hmm. in forty years at that point. Yeah, and so I spent two years of my life. Mine's pretty dog-eared. Deeply, yeah. deeply, deeply ensconced in that book in uh, sort of tearing it apart um, and trying to make sure that it went back together in a way that was better than it had been. Now, that was in what? Nin- uh, 2008. 2008. Yeah, because I would have thought there would have been a – wasn't there a, a work that came out around 77 when the Star Wars – everybody started oh, yeah, no, talking no. about it? Uh, yeah. Well, w- uh, what happened is he came out with a new edition in 1969. Six, uh-huh. Where he updated some of the some of the references and he cleaned up some you know typos and things, but um, when they brought out the 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 edition that had Luke Skywalker on the cover, right? Because of course George Lucas had used the Hero with a Thousand Faces as his. I'm not sure cover. everybody knows that, but if you don't, that was the basis. It was, and not only for his movie, I have here that uh, it was also used for the Matrix, Batman, and Indiana Jones, Absolutely. and the Lion King, and in fact any Hollywood. Um, a number of Hollywood script gurus, uh, starting with with uh, uh, um, Christopher Vogler, yeah, yeah, uh, wrote a, a called the Writer's Journey, mm-hmm. and a wonderful book actually. But what he does is he takes Campbell's schema of the of the hero journey, and he says this is how you. Well, remembering Campbell was saying this is how these things have been told. Mm-hmm. Vogler says this is how you should write a hero story, and this happened. He put this together as a memo. When they were writing uh, the Little Mermaid ah. um, at Disney, he was a script doctor at Disney, and in fact, almost every heroically involved a story that Hollywood has told in the last thirty years has, in some way, been touched by uh, the Hero with a Thousand Faces. 
which is uh, a little daunting. The thing about it is it was a beautiful book. It was a well-made book for 1949. Mm -hmm. Um, There were all kinds of technological things. Well, then we're back to the same interesting why it kind of took off, I think, at the time as you have in 1949. You've got men who've returned from war. Absolutely. And they're dealing with it and they've got to look back on it and say, was I transformed by going into the devil's, you know, maw? Literally into the belly of the beast. Right. Well, the thing about... Um, uh, that book was that it also it was the first time that anybody had looked at mythology and all of these old stories and said these are not old stories we look at modern psychology because he did Yes, part of his whole point of the book is modern psychology tells us and this is how Campbell put it that a myth is nothing more than a public dream and a dream is nothing more than a private myth and when we look at these myths, they tell us how people have dealt with all of these challenges going to war. I mean, that's what the Odyssey, in Campbell's view, is about. It's about Odysseus, this guy who's this happily married guy with a mm-hmm. young son that he doesn't want to leave, gets torn away, goes and lives with rape and mayhem for 10 years, yep. and now is unfit to go home. Because he has changed. Because he has been changed by it, yeah. and he goes through Ten more years of wandering in the in the magical wilderness, being tempted by women, by these females, starting with a witch, going on to a demigoddess, Calypso, and then a young virgin, Nausicaa. And in each case being tempted, in the first case he says, yeah, and I'm going to beat you too. That's Circe, Kirke, uh, Circe. Uh, I did three pronunciations, same name, doesn't matter. Calypso is the goddess. He kind of shacks up with her for seven years, but he's constantly peering back towards Ithaca where he wants to be with his wife, washes up on the shores of uh, the island where Nausicaa is the princess. Mm -hmm. And uh, she says, ooh, I kind of like this guy. Yeah, he's he's cute. He's older than I expected. There you go. (laughs) But he's good looking, wearing seaweed or actually a a ball. He carries a ball in front of him in order to keep himself a little modest. Right. Yeah, there you go. But what he uh, he basically does when she says, come meet my dad. I want you to, you know, you could be my husband. He says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you why I can't be your husband and I got to go over there. That's right. And in fact, that's his journey is that he goes from being this guy who is all about the completely masculine world of the battle Um is transformed through 10 years of wandering to the point where he now is fit to return to his home, kill all the suitors, right? but be reunited. Because his, his wife, wife was quite hot, as I remember. Quite, well, evidently. Yeah. Based on history. Based on, yes. And the important thing there is that it isn't that he defeats the suitors that makes her look up and go, oh, yes, you're my husband. It's that... He is able to remember uh, the details of their wedding bed. That's when she says, yes, you're the guy. You're the guy. You were there with me. Yeah. Yep. Um, that's a nice summary. Um, and in fact, that's uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Uh, I finished editing that, came back to Risico, and suddenly realized that what I had thought of as a, you know, 30 – 35-chapter single novel was, in fact, a three- or four-part 
series. Now I've got to ask you, why four part instead of five if there are five elements? Um, because there are four seasons. Okay. See, see uh, and also we, because yeah. as I was trying to move the story around, there were parts to the story that I was ending up having to squish if I did it with three and overextend if I tried to move it to five. Right. Four was just right. And then I looked up and I realized this first book is completely a book about winter. Um, it is <laughs> yes. totally caught it up. It is in the definitely of caught winter. up. Yes, and so and you describe snowflakes in different locales. Yeah, and in fact, it's very funny. Having been a Marin kid, I lived in Denver for uh, three years. I went to graduate school uh, in in Denver. I lived in the Northeast. Uh, gro- growing up in a place where snow is a foreign substance you become very sensitive to how many different kinds of snow there are and what a weird, I mean, it, it has a smell. Mm-hmm. There are all of these different, I mean, you know, there's the teeny, teeny little flakes. There are the big palm-sized dry flakes that you get up in the mountains. Yeah. And so I found as I was writing, uh, I was writing about snow a lot. Yeah, and the stillness after the well, new snow. Well, and the way that it changes yeah. the sound yeah. of things. Um, so the next book is set in the spring. Well, that makes sense. The book is Risico. Is that right? Yes. David Cuddler, and you've got to read it. And when you do, be sure to look up that section where the Korean chef teaches them about herbs because Mm -hmm. that is going to be something that you may not have known and that you will want to know. You have been listening to Word by Word on KRCB-FM North Bay Public Media. On today's show, we traveled back to war-torn Japan during the time when Lord Oda was shogun in a conversation with David Cutler about his newly released young adult novel, Risical. We also explored some of the Asian mythology that Joseph Campbell wrote about in A Hero with a Thousand Faces, posthumous edition of which is edited by David for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Our studio engineer for today's broadcast is Anthony Garcia. Our radio program manager is Sean Knight, radio coordinator Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for the next Word by Word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday, November 13th. Until then, here are some thoughts from Joseph Campbell. You must have a room, or a certain hour or so a day, where you don't know what was in the newspapers that morning. You don't know who your friends are. You don't know what you owe anybody, and you don't know what anybody owes to you. This is a place where you can simply experience and bring forth what you are and what you might be. (music) ¶¶